So about a month ago, I went to a talk given by poets, um, poets who find inspiration in revisiting old stories and familiar places. And they try to write to take away the layers added by others and find a truth, then polish it up in their own way to make them shine again. It's a bit like removing layers of old paint from a stuck window. So again, you can open it up and let the light and the air in. And one of the poets was the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams. I think he's a lot happier being a poet than he was being an Archbishop. Indeed, he said as much. And he was clear that poets should absolutely avoid being too complicated or tricksy. What all poems should really be saying to anyone is, do you recognise this? Do you feel it? That's when poems work. When we have that, yep, I totally get what they're trying to say experience. And I love that moment in Gillian Clarke's poem that Avis read, when she makes an emotional connection with an ancient piece of writing. It doesn't matter that she doesn't know the writer and can't even make out some of the words. There's enough of it there for the poem to sing in her mind from the silent archive, and all the dead words speak aloud, alive. And this is my problem with the Bible, because quite often the stories don't speak to me, let alone sing. They say, dead on the page, and I definitely don't feel them. And doing the talk on a Sunday can bring you up short against your biblical issues. So for anyone who isn't that familiar with the ways of the Church of England, I'm Welsh Methodist, so it's still pretty new, it uses something called a lectionary to indicate what readings to base every Sunday service on. And the lectionary has a three-year cycle, and it's supposed to make sure the congregation hears the Gospels from end to end. I know there are four Gospels, but St John gets treated a little differently, as he has a noticeably different style, and I knew I shouldn't start trying to explain the ways of the Church of England. But there we go, we had Mark today. It does mean that if you want to give a talk on the reading set down, you're regularly challenged with a story you can't find an immediate connection with. So what was that story today really about? The prophet John the Baptist is being held in King Herod's jail for speaking out against him, especially on the subject of Herod having married his half-brother's wife, Herodias. Herod quite likes listening to John, though. He thinks he's a righteous and holy man. So it's a big day for Herod, his birthday in fact, so he has a large feast and invites the great and the good of the kingdom to attend. And as part of the proceedings, his daughter comes out and dances for the guests. And she dances so well that Herod offers her a reward. He tells her she can have whatever she wants, up to and including half of his kingdom. So the young girl goes to her mother and asks her advice. And Herodias tells her to request the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now Herod has to keep his promises in front of so many important people, so John is beheaded. And Herod's daughter gives her mother what she had requested. I don't find much in this story for me. Or in the tradition that has grown up around it, like those layers of paint on a window. The girl who dances has become known as Salome, although the Bible names her Herodias like her mother. And legend has her dancing with seven veils, nothing but seven floaty, transparent veils, and her dance being so seductive, she encourages her father and his guests in their immorality. She inflames their lust. She's also presented as not the sharpest tool in the box, because she can't think of what to ask for as a reward, and then is used by her own mother 
to get John the Baptist silenced forever. And as for her mother Herodias, she's always portrayed as one of the most sinful women in the Bible, a villainess who flouts Jewish law by marrying her own half-brother, then uses her own daughter to get the prophet who criticised her killed. Almost all the commentators writing even now haven't changed their opinions on this story. One calls her a wicked hyena who used her own child to get her evil way. All very Game of Thrones. But are these two women really responsible for the death of John the Baptist? Historians have another view. Now, they reason that Herod's daughter would not have danced in public like that. It wasn't the done thing for a princess. It would have damaged her reputation, and more importantly, her value in the marriage market, which was the only place she had value. And only dishonourable women, prostitutes then, would have danced at such an event. Herodias, her mother, would never have been part of the banquet. In those times, respectable women did not dine with men. Historians argue that Herod had John the Baptist executed because he was challenging authority and causing unrest, which was starting to bother the Romans. And since Herod was only on the throne as a Jewish figurehead to keep the population relatively happy, he really did have to keep the peace. So the prophet who foretold the coming of Jesus was killed for political reasons. And now the story starts to make more sense for me. I think it's saying, look at how sinful this family Rome has put in place to rulers is. And look how they have killed our prophet John, who upheld our laws and spoke against them. The story is saying Rome, the occupying power, is all about sin, and John, the representative of our land and religion, is all about truth and justice. But over the centuries, the emphasis has been put on the evil woman and her young semi-naked daughter dancing at a banquet with the intention of getting a man beheaded. And that feels like a bit of a spin on a story for a congregation on a Sunday morning intended to remind men that women will lead them from the path of goodness, that women are evil and they are at the mercy of their own base lusts. Beware the female of the species. Without them, John would have lived to a ripe old age. So it feels to me like a version of a story it's high time we moved on from. So back to Rowan Williams and another thing he said. There is no last telling of the story. For him, there was no question that we should return again and again to stories, pull them apart, look for truth, shine them up, represent them. No one owns the right version of a story. There is no last telling of it. And I find that a tremendously liberating idea. It, co it encourages you to look again at all the versions of the Bible stories you might have been fed over the years. So a couple of weeks ago... I ended up in a quiz team with a man who believed quite firmly that women should be silent in church, that women priests were not biblical. I don't know how we got onto that subject. And there was a time, quite a while ago now, when I might have listened to him politely. But instead, I asked him if he'd be happy for a future employer to restrict the opportunities on offer to his own two young daughters. And then I asked him if that quote from Corinthians about women being silent in church extended to them teaching the children in Sunday school or singing in the choir or rattling the mugs when they made the tea after church. And then he got a bit cross and said he didn't want to talk to me about it anymore. He'd come to do a quiz. <laughs> and it 
did unsettle me, and it still unsettles me, to take people like him on publicly. But I didn't think he should have the last telling of that story. And there are plenty of stories we've inherited that are not fit for our time. The stories that put others down, and the stories we use to put ourselves down. Stories that have been spun, layered up with misogyny and prejudice. And they restrict us, confining us to roles that don't let us be fully ourselves. God didn't make us to live just a bit of our lives. She asks that we use our brains and bodies, hearts and energies to their full value and encourage others to do the same. You can see this in action at the moment in the completely fabulous Queer Eye series on Netflix. If you haven't come across it, it's a makeover show. Five wonderful gay men enter someone's life briefly. Someone who needs help with a story they're telling themselves. Maybe they can't move on after someone they love has died, or they've been rejected from the church for being different, or they're transitioning from female to male. And our five guys give them a makeover, from how they look, to their living space, to how they offer hospitality. But this show is never about the surface of things. It's really about the conversations they have with their subjects, persuading them to tell a different story, a story that liberates them and lets them live fully. It's a genuinely life-changing show. So I was imagining the famous five, fabulous five, entering Herod's palace and giving him a talking to about why he should instead go with his gut about how he really feels about John the Baptist. Maybe instead of holding him prisoner, Herod should sit down with him and explore why he's so attracted to his message of truth and justice. Maybe he could then bring John in as an advisor on policy, on how to deal with the Roman occupation. And I'll leave fans of Queer Eye to imagine what grooming expert Jonathan would have done with John the Baptist himself. All the flim-flam about see-through veils and the evil nature of women gets in the way of a story that's really about a leader who denied being drawn to a prophet's message. A prophet who yearned for liberation and for truth. A yearning that leads us on to Jesus, who ultimately cannot be silenced and is not silent now. So if you aren't feeling a connection to a story, it may well be that the truth of it has been obscured by too many layers of outdated perspectives. Or it's being told from a point of view that just doesn't fit with where we are now. But there's no last telling. You don't have to stick with it. Don't leave yourself the prisoner of old ways of telling and seeing. Where is the window that needs the layers of paint removing so you can throw it open and let the light and the air in. <laughs>